imagine there were some uh, maybe young boys who were thinking, I wish I could be up there lighting those candles. That would be so much fun. It is the fourth Sunday in Advent, so we light four candles, and we are following the Advent themes this year. And so today I want to talk about love, the fourth theme among the four during Advent. And I want to start out actually right away with uh, reading God's Word. So if you could turn in your Bibles or follow on the overhead, I want to read from John 3, 16 and 8 through 18, a verse you're familiar with. I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation, by the way, and a lot of today's message I chose to use that, not entirely. Um, by the way, it's a wonderful translation. It's not the Living Translation. Um, it's different, and it's one that actually is fairly accurate in its interpretation of the original language. Um, and there are men such as D.A. Carson and others who uh, endorse it. So um, it's closer to just regular American English. That's its benefit. And I would recommend it for personal devotion. Um, not necessarily for study, because I think the ESV and NAS and others are probably the best for study. But it's an excellent one for devotion. And at times, sometimes when things are phrased in familiar ways, uh, with using familiar language, uh, it can be more powerful in us. Uh, it's working us and our ability to grasp it. So that's why I chose to do this today. Um, so the New Living Translation, John chapter 3, 16 through 18, it says this, For this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent His Son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in Him, but anyone who does not believe in Him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. God's Word from John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. This is lifted from a section of Scripture that is fascinating, uh, this interaction that Jesus has with Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, a national leader, a teacher, uh, we just went over it on Saturday with our men's group. Um, and there's lots of stuff in this whole section. There are truths, though, in these smaller sections that we can lift out that, of course, sit in a context uh, in the original place within that chapter, but in all of Scripture. So I'm lifting this out because it teaches us about the love of God in a profound way. It may be a bit overworn for us because this is a verse that we see all the time, John 3.16. Maybe your first exposure to a Bible verse was at a football game or watching a football game when they hang John 3.16 over the, the railing. Um, I remember a friend of mine asking me, is that like a verse that has to do with football somehow? What's, what's the relationship? So we're, we're perhaps familiar with it. And I would submit too, we're perhaps familiar with this idea that God loves us. Because our culture actually is full of people who love us, Right? Everybody loves everybody in our culture. So uh, if you watch football, for instance, uh, men spend 60 minutes doing great violence to each other. Then at the end, they say, I love you, bro. Uh, they, they love each other, right? They, they, at least they say that. We hear it from hosts. You, you watch a show like The Voice, and Carson will say, we, we love you. We've been hearing it for years. Mr. Rogers, I know, told me that he loved me. Barney has told the... The uh, Xers, I guess, uh, and the Millennials, that, that they are loved. And so, we're used to it. Of course God loves us. And, and if we're not careful, we'll put the love of God in the same category as the love of Barney. Or whomever. 
there are different levels of love. There are different levels of love. Tremendously different levels of love. For instance, Liz Joyce succumbed to cancer in March 2014 at the age of 36. Six weeks after giving birth to her daughter, Lily. Liz had been in remission for two years when she and her husband, Max, decided to have a baby. The cancer showed up again at week 12. And at that point in time, Liz and her husband decided they would not terminate the pregnancy and therefore not be able to get the aggressive scans and treatments that were necessary to fight the cancer. And so they realized that it would likely lead to her death to bear this child. And so she made lots of videotapes for her daughter, Lily. Because if she were not to survive this, she wanted her daughter to know her love for her and who she was. And these videotapes are captured uh, as part of a documentary called 40 Weeks that you might want to look at at some point. Near the end, Lily was born, of course, and Liz is holding the baby. There's joy on her face. And she says, this is worth it. I would do it all again to have this child. And then at another point she says, speaking directly to Lily, regardless of whatever happens to me, going through this to bring you here, it was always going to be worth it, no question. I don't want this to be hard on you. I just want you to know how important you are. You're bigger than me. I imagine for Lily, growing up, probably the age of six at this point, and as she gets older, she will know the difference between the love of her mother and the love she sees or expressed to her on television. Brothers and sisters, similarly, we must know the difference between the love of God and all other loves. There is no other love that compares to the love of God. There is no other love that compares to the love of God. It is an infinite love. It is a redeeming love. It is an inviting love. And that's what I want to do. I want to dig into the truth of God's love from John 3.16 and elsewhere in Scripture and learn about this that we might not just know these things but be transformed by this truth that there is no love like the love of God. So let's pray and ask God for help. Lord, we, we ask you to help us Lord, perhaps if, we're, if our culture and our background was such that, that we had never really heard the words, I love you, um, as we read John 3.16 for the first time, it would affect us deeply. But that, Lord, that's not our context. We're too used to hearing this. And therefore, Lord, uh, we tend to put your love in the same category as other loves. And I pray you would help us. Spirit of God, you would help us. You're the one who testifies to the children of God that they are loved of the Father. And so we ask you for help right now. I pray you'd help me to, to so teach and explain and illustrate this, Lord, that, that as I do that, by your grace, we would, we would encounter you in your love and be changed by it. And Lord, you would be glorified in it because there is no other love like you and you deserve all the glory and all of our affection and all of our obedience because of your great love. So be with us now, we pray. Help us and glorify your name, we pray. Amen. Well, first, 
let's look at this truth that it's God of the the love of God is infinite love. That's a word that you, an adjective you don't want to use too much. Infinite. There aren't many things that are infinite, um, and so we, we don't want to attach infinite to a noun usually, but for the love of God, it is entirely appropriate to say that it is infinite. It's the infinite love of God. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, as he's speaking to the Ephesians, as he wants them to grow in Christ, as he wants them to be all that they're called to be, he says, he prays for them, he says, may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. It is an infinite love. It, it is it is wide, long, high, and deep. It is beyond comprehension. It is something we will never grasp in its dimensions. And so John 3.16, classically in the ESV and other translations, says, for God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. And, and when we say something like that, when we use that word so as a modifier, you expect uh, an explanation of, of the dimensions of the, the so. Right? If I were to say to you, the Grand Canyon is so large, you would expect me next to illustrate how large it is, right? It's actually 277 miles long, 20 miles wide, over one mile deep. It, the Grand Canyon is large enough to, to contain all, almost all the waters of Lake Michigan in itself. That's how voluminous and large the Grand Canyon is. So if I were to say the Grand Canyon is so large, you would expect... Tell me something. Give me an illustration. And so in our text in John 3.16, God so loved the world, the explanation is that he gave his only son. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. So if we want to understand how he loved the world, what are the dimensions of this love, then we need to probe this, this truth that he gave his only son. So the explanation is in the worth of his son and in the giving of something so worthy. That's how we know the love of God. If we're going to grasp the love of God, we need to grasp that he gave his son. We need to grasp the, the preciousness of the son and the preciousness of their eternal perfect relationship. And the sacrifice that came and the son being given. That's how we understand the love of God. And so what I would submit to you is that we need to probe a little bit in, in how worthy the Son is, and, and, and in particular, how, how precious the relationship of the Father and the Son is. That the Father would actually choose to break that relationship in, in a significant way. To send the Son for us. To exchange the Son for us. And there's lots that we can look at in Scripture. I, I, I think we can see the relationship of the Father and the Son in a profound way in the Gospel of John. And there are certain verses in John that illustrate this, that shows us this relationship. Jesus says in John 17, Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. Jesus wants his disciples and those who will come to Christ through his disciples, that's you and me, to, to be with him, that we can see his glory, and we could see this love 
He's loved, the Father has loved the Son before the world began. There's been this eternal, perfect, infinite love. John chapter 5 says, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him everything He's doing. In fact, the Father will show Him uh, how to do even greater works than healing this man. Then, then you'll be truly astonished. So Jesus is saying the Father loves the Son and shows Him everything He's doing. In John 14, Jesus says, I will do what the Father requires of me so that the world will know that I love the Father. So Jesus is explaining really that the basis of His ministry, the basis and the goal of His ministry is the love, His love for the Father and the Father's love for Him. That, that we might see that, behold it, and participate in it. But it's a love that is eternal it's infinite between the Father and the Son. I think it's really important that we understand that the love that the Father has for us, the love that God has for us, is not about us, though it is about us. The comparison of His love for us has to do with His love for the Son, their, their love for each other. Their perfect inter-Trinitarian eternal love for each other that is tremendous, that is glorious, that's beyond compare, that's infinite. That's the love. And it's the giving of the, the Son by the Father for us that illustrates how much He loves us. So if we want to know how much He loves us, we need to know how much the Father loves the Son, how much the Son loves the Father. And John 17 illustrates that. John 5, John 14, and elsewhere in Scripture, this precious, glorious, eternal relationship where the Son is willing to obey the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's an incomprehensible love that they have for one another. And you and I and the love that we have from the Father to us are really byproducts of that infinite love, grounded in that infinite love, illustrated by that infinite love. I hope that makes sense. I don't know uh, if you know uh, what a Stradivarius violin is. Stradivarius violins are made by Antonio Stradivari. Uh, Joshua Bell, the famous violinist, has one. He paid almost $4 million for his. I don't know if you've heard of Guarneri violins. They're actually just as precious and, according to some violinists, better. They sound better. Um, one was purchased for $16 million and given to the violinist Anne Kiko Myers. These violins were produced by three generations of Guarneri's. Andrea, his son Giuseppe, and then Giuseppe's sons Bartolomeo and Pietro. So three generations worked in this workshop producing these glorious violins that are worth millions and millions of dollars at this point. Can you imagine what it would be like to be in that workshop as these three generations worked side by side making glorious masterpieces? I imagine they loved their work and loved working together for three generations to continue to do this work. Imagine that you somehow got a job offer or you were asked to work for them and maybe your job is just to be in the shop to clean up and you're there to clean the shop. What would it be like if you had the knowledge we have of these violins and how precious they are and how amazing it is to be in this workshop? What would it be like to be in that workshop? What would be your attitude? Would you be in there and, and immediately think, you know, I need to tell these guys how to run their shop? 
I need to kind of get involved here and maybe, you know, change their designs a little bit, you know, and, and like interject and, and kind of take over here? Or would it be more appropriate, of course, just to be in awe that you get to be there and observe these guys at work and their relationship with each other and what they're crafting? That's a metaphor for the love of God. There is an eternal love of God. There's this work being done by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that goes back infinitely. It follows through in the creation of the world and all the glorious things that they make in the world together. It follows through that to the plan of redemption, the fall of man, and the plan to redeem man. Them working together and deciding to rescue us. Their plans to establish the Son as the King of Kings and eventually bring His reign to completion and renew the entire universe. This all flows from the, the workshop, so to speak, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They have an infinite, eternal, glorious love. And we get invited into that shop through Christ. And we're told by the Scriptures, as the Father has loved the Son, so He loves you. That makes a difference in how we understand John 3.16, I think. For God so loved the world, for God so loved me, that He gave His only Son. That I could be a part of that. I could observe them. I could be part of that love. We could be part of that love and know that same love. This infinite, glorious love. The love of God that we have, the love of God that has existed from before time began for us as believers. If you're a believer, you can know for sure that that love has been for you from before time. If you're not a believer, the way to know it is simply come to Jesus. Receive this love. Turn from your sins. Trust Him in His death and resurrection. And then you too can know it. As a matter of fact, even though I wasn't aware of it, this love existed for me before time began. This love is an infinite love. The love of God is an infinite love. But the love of God is also a, an active, redeeming love. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that He gave His Son. So that tells us the, the dimensions of this love. But there's a purpose, there's redemption, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It's a love that comes to redeem us, to redeem us, to rescue us. Redemption is a word that we don't use a whole lot. Probably most commonly used in speaking of bottles and cans, right? There's a redemption, uh, redemption price in certain states for bottles and cans. What is it now? Like 10 cents maybe? I'm not even sure. Five? Is it only five cents? That doesn't motivate you a whole lot, just five cents, but... But the idea is that when you discard that bottle or can, um, it's either litter or if it gets redeemed, the state, I guess, ultimately the store, will give you five or ten cents for it. So they pay a redemption price. Actually, you pay when you buy the thing. But anyhow, there's a redemption price to rescue that bottle or can from being litter to being purchased and used for something. Recycled, I guess. And so the love of God is a redeeming love. It comes to rescue us. And there's a price that gets paid in the love, the outworking of this love for us. 
John, 1 John 4 teaches us, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and what? And sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the redemption price. That is how He loves us, how He redeems us. He, the Son, is sent as the payment, the redemption price. Not just five cents, not just ten cents, but infinite worth in His life being offered up on the cross. Propitiation for our sins. And propitiation is a, an exact word that's worth preserving even though it's an unfamiliar word. Because it doesn't just mean any old price. It doesn't just mean any old sacrifice. It's a particular type of sacrifice. It's a sacrifice given to, to appease wrath. And in the case of God, it's to appease, to satisfy just wrath. The wrath of God is not willy-nilly. He, he doesn't, you know, he's not capricious. He doesn't just get angry. He's not irritable. He's pure. He's holy. He's good. And his wrath towards sin is the same sort of feeling that we would have if we heard about some terrible abuse that was done to an innocent party. We heard, heard of somebody who was beaten up and robbed, maybe an, an elderly person, brutally beaten up and robbed. We would be irate. That's so wrong. I so hope they catch that criminal. Well, take that to the perfect degree because God is perfectly holy, perfectly pure, perfectly innocent, perfectly right. And when we sin against Him, it's greatly evil. And so the justice of God must react to that sin. And the wages of sin is death. God is just. And so we are, we are punished in our sins with death, with spiritual death. And, and that's the reality where, where humankind lives. We live in this state of separation from God and of spiritual death. And should we remain in that state without redemption will be there forever in spiritual death. That's what hell is about. And it's just. Hell will not be unjust in any way. It will be perfectly just and right. The right response. And so there's a price to be paid for our sin and our separation from God. We are to be left either as litter, in a sense, on the side of the street, even though precious and glorious in the image of God, or redeemed from that state, rescued from that state, brought into relationship with God once again. And it is only through the right payment for our sins. That's what propitiation is. And that's what the price that Jesus paid is. He paid for our sins. He paid what is owed for our sins in full. We have all gone astray. We've all followed our own way. And He's laid on Him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He bears the penalty for us. He pays the price. This love is a redeeming love. It pursues us. God is not content to leave us on the side of the road in our sin, separated from Him, broken. But He wants in His love, and He will in His love, redeem us. And so Ephesians 2 says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. His love pursues us and rescues us 
and, and redeems us from our sin and then brings us into His presence and seats us with Him in the heavenly realms to reign with Him forever. His redemption is not just partial. It's not just the forgiveness of sins, as profound as that is, but it's full redemption. It's full, full transformation of our lives. So the day that you believe your sins are paid for, you are rescued, you belong to Him, and He begins a process that will be completed of making you wholly redeemed, of making you into the image of Jesus, of making the perfect, holy, glorious you He's intended to do all along. That's His love. He loves us that much. He's paid the price. And the price is a costly one. And there's no more valuable human than the God-man, the, the one who is both human and divine, Jesus. And, and His death on the cross is fully able to pay for your sins. Matter of fact, it is more than able to pay for all sins multiplied infinitely. Because He is God in the flesh. He is the perfect human who never sinned, has no need to pay for His own sin, who fulfilled all righteousness as a human, the second Adam, and yet is God Himself. Two natures in one being. Dying on the cross for our sins. Paying the price perfectly. His death is more than adequate for your sins and your forgiveness. And the Father, in His love for you, sent His Son, gave up His Son, gave up that eternal, infinite, glorious love to pay for your sins. That's the love of God. It's an infinite love. It's a redeeming love. There's no love like it. You cannot compare any human love to the love of God. It's an infant love. It's a redeeming love. And, and if we wrestle with this, we have to, we have to consider the, the prospect, the reality, I think the fact in Scripture that He loves us as He loves the Son. The love that the Father has for us is as He loves the Son. It's the same category, the same degree as His love for the Son. We just read that right in John 17. It's a holy love. It's a precious love. It's a worthy love. And it's a love for us. Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor and theologian, says this, when we think of Christ dying on the cross, we are shown the length to which God's love goes in order to win us back to Himself. We should almost think that God loved us more than He loves His Son. We cannot measure His love by any other standard. He is saying to us, I love you this much. That's the love He has for us. There is no greater love. There is no more amazing thing than the fact that He loves us. And we as Christians must ground ourselves in the love of God most of all. It must be our ultimate foundation that He has loved us with this infinite love and everything else flows from that. And, and 
And we must avoid the ridiculous idea that somehow we can do something to make Him love us. Somehow we can do something to keep Him loving us. Our security is in that infinite eternal love. And it's an insult to His holy, glorious name, His amazing sacrifice of Christ on the cross, to think that we somehow could add or earn a part of that love. So worship Him by letting Him love you. And letting that be the base and the motivation and the goal and the everything of your Christian life. This is who God is. He is love. John, 1 John 4 says, God is love. God showed how much He loved us by sending His one and only Son into the world that we might have eternal life through Him. God is love. It's who He is. It's a core aspect of His character. It's the ground of love. It's the source of love. His love is infinite. It is redeeming. It will accomplish its purpose. It will hold you in your struggles and your weakness. It will be what holds you. Your weakness and even your sin, if you are a believer, is no match for the love of God. He will continue to love you. He will pursue you. He will rebuke you. He will discipline you. He's a good father. He'll do what he needs to do to chase you down and find you. If you're a believer, you can run, but you can't hide. The most miserable sort of human being is a believer who's trying to run from the love of God. The happiest person is the believer who lives in, from, and for the love of God. His love will pursue us. So John, Romans 8, teaches us, no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our confidence. That's our motivation. Nothing compares to this eternal, redeeming love. Finally, God's love is an inviting love. It is an infinite love. It is a redeeming love. It is an inviting love. It invites us. It calls for a response. It's calling you to respond right now. We see this in John 3 and elsewhere, but John 3, as we read again, the New Living, this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son that everyone who believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God sent His Son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through Him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in Him, but anyone who does not believe in Him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. There are two categories in this, right? There's the, this infinite love of God, this redeeming love of God, and then this explanation that there's basically two categories. Those who would believe in Him and receive this love, and those who wouldn't. So there's a call there to all humanity to consider, where do I stand? Have I believed and received this love? Have I turned away from my sin to receive and live in this? Earlier on in John chapter 1, 
and we'll talk about this Christmas Eve, at the core of the section in the beginning of John chapter 1 is this verse, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So the love of God as it's presented as infinite and redeeming is always inviting, it's always calling for a decision. Will you believe it? Will you receive it? And by the way, this call is not just for someone who doesn't yet know Christ. It's for every believer. It's what Paul prays in Ephesians 3. That they would know, these are believers he's praying for, that they would know this love of God. Your pursuit of the understanding and experience of the love of God never ends. And so it's always an inviting love. Will you go deeper? Will you consider more of the depth of this love? Will you let this love transform your own life? Will you let this love overwhelm your love of self and sin? Your lovelessness to transform you to be like Jesus, to love others like Him. Will you let this love go deeper and deeper and deeper and empower you more and more and more? This love is an inviting love. This love stands in some ways as a judge of all humanity. What will you do with this love? What will you do with this fact that He so loved the world that He gave His Son? And you will fall into one category or another. There's a story of a tourist who was at the Louvre and the Great Art Museum in Paris looking at a portrait of the Mona Lisa as a guard stood by. He sat, stood there staring for a while then he said, nah, I don't like it. The guard replied, sir, this painting is no longer being critiqued by its viewers. It is critiquing them. Likewise, the love of God in Christ stands as the ultimate scrutinizer of all people and begs the question, begs the answer to the question, what will you do with this love? What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with what we celebrate at Christmas and what it means? What will you do if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus? Will you choose to ignore it? Such a love? I hope not. How can you? Will you choose to love something else more than the one that would love you so much? Today might be the day where you just need to say no more. No more doing it my own way. No more loving other stuff more. Please forgive me. Jesus, thank you for dying for me and rising again. And I want to learn to love you. I can't do it on my own, but I want to start. He will hear that prayer and respond to it and be there. And, and just so you know, no one else in this room is in any different place than that. We need him. We need his help to love him. And he responds to prayers of repentance and faith like that. So maybe today is the day that you... Tell him that. If you're a believer, let me encourage you also to not stop pursuing, knowing, and treasuring, and living in and by and for the love of God. If you're trying to do the Christian life without your confidence being in the love of God, you are in for some real trouble. You're in grave danger. Your motivations will be twisted. Your fruit will ultimately be rotten. 
and the results will not be good. We all have to have a motivation to be a Christian. We all have to have a motivation to keep on doing what we're doing. There are other motivations that are out there. Legalism is a big one. In all of us, there's this tendency to think, to import our own works. Our, what we do really matters. It's our response, but it's never the source. And we all have this tendency to want to import our, our good works into the love of God. That if I can be good enough, then He'll really love me. He'll have to respond. Or if I can just keep on being good, I can keep in His love. And, and certainly there is a part of our loving obedience to Him, and a large part of it, is it keeps us close to Him, and there's nothing better. So your experience of that love, your sense of that love, is related to your obedience, but it's not the source of it, and it doesn't do anything to affect it. He loves you, and He will always will love you, and if you choose not to live in His love and obey Him, He'll chase you down, but you can't get that mixed up. You can't mix legalism into love. You've got to live in love and let... The love motivates you. The love of God for you motivates you to love Him. To lay your life down for Him. To lay your life down for others. Your ability to love your spouse comes from knowing the love of God and, and taking small steps of obedience to go and love your spouse like He loves you. Ask Him all the way, Lord, I can't do this. Help me now. Lord, I can't do this. Help me now. It's got to be motivated and empowered by the love. So don't stop pursuing your need for the love of God. Let it define your life. That's why Paul prays that way again in Ephesians 3, that, that you might show all the fullness, experience all the fullness of, the, of God as believers. It comes from knowing His love. And so as I close and as we transition, just want to encourage you right now, take a moment. Maybe your moment, you just make that prayer. No more. I want to follow you. Or maybe as a believer, you just say, Lord, help me, forgive me for not grounding myself and pursuing my knowledge and experience of your love. Forgive me and help me now to keep on growing in your love. We'll take a minute uh, to pray and then Pastor Toby will come up to transition us.